Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroless. Monopoly has always been a popular game in my house. I think the first time I played it, I was about five and we've been playing it ever since at family functions and parties. Now I have lots of memories of playing Monopoly with friends and family, but one instance stands out in particular. I guess I was about 10 years old, and my family went down the shore to stay at my mother's friend's house. It was a great time down the shore. We got to go to the beach, go fishing, ride on a boat. But the real standout memory for me was this marathon game of Monopoly we played. I think we started at around six o'clock, maybe five. We'd eaten an early dinner of barbecue. We went inside, they set up the board. I was the youngest player there and we started playing. And like many Monopoly games, it just went on and on. Now I don't think I'd won that night, but I did pretty well. And the reason I don't remember is because there was something else that overshadowed the gaming experience. All throughout the night there was snacking and iced tea was available. Now I drank some iced tea, but not a ton of it. I loved this iced tea. It was a really good tasting iced tea. I think they made it by hand. And it must have been chock full of caffeine because I was wired. I must have drank 20 glasses of the stuff. It was insane. Now, when I tried to sleep that night, I had the most vivid nightmares. Nightmares about Monopoly, about giant dice rolling over me and giant metal pieces chasing me. And it morphed into all sorts of crazy Lovecraftian monster business that Still to this day, I can visualize perfectly. I woke up many times during the night screaming, which of course alarmed the entire house. My family told me to relax, got me to go back to sleep, and it kicked in right again. I didn't get sick any other way. I can't explain what else would do it. I've always blamed the iced tea. To this day, I still don't drink much iced tea because of that night. And as a side note, so frazzled was I on that day that my childhood teddy bear was left behind, never to be seen again. But that is another story. On today's show, we're going to talk about Monopoly. We're going to talk about how it was created, the crazy amount of variance, its ubiquity in American culture, and its worldwide appeal. So, without further ado, let's start the show. The story of Monopoly is complicated. Most people know the basic history that it was mass-produced first by Charles Darrow and then sold to Parker Brothers, but Monopoly's roots go back a bit further. It starts in 1903, when a woman named Elizabeth McGee came up with an idea 
for a game that she would call the landlord's game. Now, there was a popular movement at the time called Georgism, and Georgists were followers of economist Henry George. Henry George today is probably known most famously for the idea of a single tax on land. At the turn of the century, those ideas were popular, and actually communities were springing up that took this to heart. So McGee believed in this, and she created the landlord game as a learning tool to teach this single tax idea. The game that she invented was played on a board that had 40 squares arranged 10 per side. Sound familiar? And the four corners were even pretty similar, just with different names. You had jail, you had public parking, free parking. They even had railroads in the center spaces of each square. In 1904, the Landlord's Game was granted a U.S. patent and was produced in 1906. The game wouldn't be what I would describe as a hit, but it started to develop a cult following. That cult following led to people making their own version of the game and changing the rules as they saw fit. One of the side effects of this was that they would take the names in the game, the squares, and regionalize them, and that'll play into the Monopoly that we see today. In 1921, the patent for Monopoly expired, and McGee, who was now Phillips, she had gotten married, made changes to the game based on things she had heard from the spread of the game. In 1924, she applied for a new patent, and now this new patent had rules for a game called Landlords and one for Prosperity. And Prosperity's rules are actually very similar to what we see in Monopoly. Now, as I said, people were making their own games, and they started to refer to it as different names, depending on who was making it. But the popular name became Auction Monopoly or Monopoly. The game was getting so popular that individuals made their own set of rules for the game and started distributing variants. One of the more successful of these variants was made by a guy named Dan Lehman in 1932. He took a version of Auction Monopoly and sold it to a company called Electronic Laboratories in Indianapolis, and they named the game Finance. Why did they choose not to name it Auction Monopoly? His lawyers at the time said that the name Monopoly was in the public domain and it would be impossible to protect it, which seems kind of silly now that we know how successful the game Monopoly is. Now this would be the first version of Monopoly to be mass-produced. Sorry is a game parents like to play just as much as kids. Now I got you. No, I don't. It's easy, it's fast, and it's fun. And sometimes you can send another player all the way... Back to start, Dad. Sorry. Make each day a little brighter, no matter what the weather. Parker Brothers kind of fun. Every time you shop at Albertsons and pick up a Monopoly game ticket is another chance to win. Win big, that is. Collect the markers to win a $500,000 mortgage. Drive away in a shiny new car, truck, or van. Set sail on a carnival cruise. Fill up with gas certificates worth $5,000. Plus, there are over a million instant winners winning and grinning. Shop Albertsons. Play Monopoly. Win big. Now, how did the game get from the Landlord's Game to Auction Monopoly to Finance to Charles Darrow? Well, 
there was a woman named Ruth Hoskins who learned the game from Dan Lehman and then moved to a city in New Jersey called Atlantic City. The game was a big hit amongst her immediate friends, and they would have Monopoly nights. Sound familiar? She took the names of areas in Atlantic City and renamed the tiles on the board. Now, one of the people who helped her do all this was named Jesse Rayford, and Rayford was friends with a guy named Charles Todd, and Rayford taught Todd how to play Monopoly. Now, I should note that auction Monopoly was different than what we would call Monopoly in that there were no property value. Everything that you landed on would be auctioned to the highest bidder, which is a house rule that I've actually seen adopted by many people. Charles Todd was friends with Esther Darrow, who was Charles Darrow's wife, and invited the Darrows over to play Monopoly one night. Darrow enjoyed it thoroughly and knew that something was really good here. He asked Todd if he could have a copy of the rules. Todd had his secretary type them up and send them to Darrow. And of course, Charles Darrow never spoke to Charles Todd again. We'll return after these messages. Nobody's too young to play the Monopoly game. Yeah, there's the Monopoly Junior game for kids just like you. It's all about a trip to the amusement park. We get to buy and sell like Monopoly. You can get bricks. Like Monopoly, the Monopoly Junior game. Specially designed for your kids 5 to 8. The game Monopoly has come to life at McDonald's. Win a McDLT, Coca-Cola, or $1 million. Collect St. Charles Place, States and Virginia Avenues, and win a dream vacation. Collect these for a $250,000 home. Hello. Over $40 million in cash and prizes. Collect the right game pieces or win instantly. So play Monopoly. Do not pass go. Go directly to McDonald's. Darrow began playing Monopoly at home with his rules, but also realized that he had a really good thing on his hands. And unlike other hobbyists who had been playing Monopoly, he was slightly more business-minded about it. He began to make small changes to the board, adding the color stripe and illustrations that we still see today. And I guess from that point on, we could say that modern Monopoly was born. Darrow began hand-making boards on his own and selling them. These are known as Darrow editions of Monopoly. But as demand increased, he couldn't make enough handmade versions of the game. So he hired a company called Patterson and White to print the black and white parts of the board game, and he would still do the coloring and illustrations. This allowed him to effectively double production of the game. But he still lagged behind in the demand. Realizing this, he went to Patterson and White and said, I need you to make these games completely. So he had Patterson and White produce 500 complete game sets. These sold out almost immediately, and he had 500 more made. Now these sets, like all early Monopoly editions, are quite collectible and are known as the Darrow White Box Edition. These games were selling like hotcakes, so Darrow tried to get other companies interested in partnering with him. He went to Milton Bradley, and they turned him down. Then he went to Parker Brothers, and Parker Brothers had no interest in it. A bit confused, but still determined, Darrow went back to Patterson and White, and ordered 5,900 more sets of Monopoly. There would be a change, though, from what would be the white box edition. Retailers thought that the white box, which was longer and thinner, similar to what we use today, was way too big and took up too much shelf space. Darrow decided to make the retailers happy and put the contents of the game in a very small black box, and the board would be separate. 
That way retailers could shelve it more efficiently. It is known as the Darrow Black Box Edition. Now those 5,900 units went really quick as well. It makes you wonder what Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley were thinking. But in early 1935, Parker Brothers finally did take notice. They called Darrow and they decided to enter a partnership. Now, as I said earlier, lawyers have thought that the name Monopoly was already in the public domain. So Parker Brothers had Darrow file for a patent on Monopoly, while at the same time, they worked up a similar game to Monopoly that they would call Fortune. At the same time, Parker Brothers went around to the different holders of similar intellectual property and started buying it from them. They purchased Mrs. Phillips' patent for $500. They also agreed to manufacture some of her games. Then they bought out the Knapp Electrical Company's version of Finance and then would use the name Finance in another game. So for the rest of 1935, Parker Brothers was forced to wait and they actually started making Fortune, the game. They produced 5,000 of them before patent number 2,026,082 was granted, which gave Parker Brothers proprietary rights to the game Monopoly. Because of lengthy court processes, appeals, and the difficulty of Procuring a trademark on a game that had so many contributors, the legal troubles and trademark dispute on the game were not settled until the mid-80s. But now, the game's name is a registered trademark of Parker Brothers, and the company still only acknowledges the role of Charles Darrow in the creation of the game. There was a great book published on the subject called The Billion Dollar Monopoly Swindle, which was later retitled Monopoly Gate, which tells a great story about the suppression of the game's early history and development. And if you're a Monopoly fan or just a board game enthusiast, it's a really interesting read. Well, I guess it's important to talk about how the game of Monopoly is played. In Monopoly, players take turns rolling dice and then moving their tokens around the board a number of places that corresponds to what you rolled on the dice. If a player lands on a piece of property that is unowned, they can decide to purchase that property, or if they do not purchase it, the property is auctioned off by the bank to the highest bidder, which is kind of a throwback to the original auction monopoly rules. If the property is owned by another person, the player who landed on that space must pay them a fee for landing in that space, or rent. This continues with the ability to improve one's properties by buying a limited number of houses and hotels. The game ends when one person controls all the property on the board and pretty much everyone else is bankrupt. This can lead to huge marathon sessions of Monopoly and some people have chosen to set a time limit and the person with the most money and property value at the end of that predetermined time will be the winner. Of course, what's Monopoly without house rules? and almost everyone I've ever played with has some sort of house rule. The typical house rule is the free parking jackpot house rule. This puts a certain amount of money in the center, and if you happen to land on free parking, you get a little cash. Another quite common one is the no bank auctioning of unowned property. This means that when a player just lands on a piece of property and decides not to buy it, that just moves on to the next person's turn with no bank auction. There's other ones like if you land on go as opposed to pass and go, you get extra money, bonuses for rolling certain combinations of dice, you name it, and people come up with it. A favorite in my household when I was a kid was what we would call rent immunity, meaning if I traded you a property or you landed on mine, I would say, hey, if you land on my Marvin's Gardens, the next three times you don't have to pay rent. All of these things just prolong the Monopoly game. If you ask a hardcore board gamer what the strategy 
for monopoly would be, many of them will say there are none. It is a common criticism of the game that it is too based on luck and rolling a dice. On more than one site, I've seen the format of Monopoly referred to as a roll-your-dice-move-your-mice format. And I can see that, but there is some amount of strategy involved in deciding what properties to buy and how to spend your money. Of course, luck will always come into it. Now, there have been whole books on what strategies to use when playing Monopoly. And I think if you were to consider where and when people wind up in the game, say, going to jail, pass and go... All those different things that chance and the board forces you to do, you would see that there are better properties to buy in the game. Just as an example, there are several properties that have chance cards that make you go to them. St. Charles Place, Illinois Avenue, Boardwalk, all of the railroads. Since there's an extra chance that someone will move to those particular places, it might be beneficial to be the owner of them. Now, I've tried to read some of these strategy guides and decide if they're useful to me. But I've found playing Monopoly that the best thing always seems to be buy everything that you can as fast as you can. And if you want to have some sort of sanity left by the end of the night, set a time limit. So now that you know how to play the game and a little bit about strategy, here's a little bit about what's included in the average Monopoly set. Depending on the edition of Monopoly you have, there are different tokens, but the standard ones that you'll find in most sets are the wheelbarrow, the battleship, the horse, the car, the thimble, the cannon or howitzer, the shoe, the Scotty dog, the iron, and the top hat. The game also has two six-sided dice, deeds for all the properties in the games, that's 22 streets divided into eight color groups, four railways, and two utilities. A supply of paper money that is equal to 15,140 US dollars. 32 plastic houses and 12 plastic hotels. If you have a deluxe edition, you might have wooden versions of those. 16 chance cards and 16 community chess cards. Some interesting little fun facts about the tokens in the game. The battleship and the cannon were actually brought into the game from another game that had failed at Parker Brothers called Conflict. And instead of wasting the tokens, they thought, well, let's just bring them into Monopoly. Recently, those two pieces were also brought into another Parker Brothers game, Diplomacy. Early non-U.S. versions of the game didn't have any of these metal tokens at all, but instead had wooden pieces that are similar to what you would find in the American version of Sari. During World War II, the materials for making dice were scarce and were needed in the war effort. So in the U.K., they replaced the die with a spinner that you would use to roll. That's somewhat of a collector's item today. Speaking of World War II and Monopoly, in 1941, the licensor of Monopoly in the UK, John Waddington Limited, was asked to create special editions of Monopoly for prisoners of war that were being held by the Nazis. Hidden inside these games were maps, compasses, and actual real money that the POWs could use to escape from their POW camps. And these were distributed to the prisoners by Secret Service-created fake charity groups. So Monopoly helping the war effort. Recently in the U.S. edition, a change happened that freaked me out the first time I saw it. They changed the color of Baltic Avenue and Mediterranean Avenue from purple to brown. And instead of the 10% tax they've changed it to a flat tax of $200. Now you might say, oh, that's no big deal. But if you've been playing a game your whole life and then suddenly there's a change, it just jumps out at you. And I was talking about it pretty much the whole time we were playing. It unsettled me. I'd like to take a little time to talk about the official mascot of Monopoly. 
He's that little guy with the top hat who's been parodied a couple of times on the TV show The Simpsons. That man is referred to as Rich Uncle Pennybags or Mr. Monopoly. Nowadays, his full official name is Stanley Monopoly, but that's not how he started. The character first appeared on Chance and Community Chess Cards in the 1936 edition of Monopoly. The identity of the artist who actually made him is unknown, but the character's look and design was influenced heavily by financier and banker J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie. The character got his name Rich Uncle Pennybags in 1946 when he actually appeared in another Parker Brothers game called Rich Uncle, and he would keep the name Rich Uncle Pennybags until 1999 when, during a marketing change, they rechristened the character Mr. Monopoly. Now, they can try to change his name, they can do whatever, but to me, he'll always be Rich Uncle Pennybags. Monopoly is still one of the best-selling board games, but the Parker Brothers people have not stopped at the basic system. They've tried different add-ons over the years. There was a stock exchange system added as early as 1936, which added an extra tradable material in the game. The stock exchange add-on wasn't super popular and disappeared. It eventually resurfaced in 1992, but in the 1992 version, they actually added new chance and community chess cards dealing with the stock market. And then in 2001, there was a Monopoly stock exchange edition that was available in countries outside of the U.S. This one added an electronic calculating device to keep track of all the complex stock figures. And this was a full edition, unlike the other ones, not an add-on. And the properties on the board were replaced by companies on which chairs could be floated and offices and home offices could be built. So they took the add-on and built the gameplay completely around that for a change. In 82, they added an electronic device for keeping track of all the players' movements. I've only seen this in commercials, and it was a cute little unsophisticated device. And the thing I remember most about it is that when you landed on railroads, it would play I've Been Working on the Railroad and things like that. In 2007, Monopoly introduced something called the Speed Die, which was a device that would allow the player to move faster around the board and hopefully speed up the game. None of these add-ons have been greeted warmly by the Monopoly community at large. So the add-ons, perhaps not as popular as the original game, but there have been a great amount of spin-offs in the board game world, the computer world, and the console world. There's been a port of the board game Monopoly pretty much for every system that you can imagine dating back to the 80s. And just the other day, I was standing next to someone who was playing it on their iPhone. There was a Monopoly pinball machine made by Stern in 2001 in the board game world. See if any of these are familiar to you. There was Monopoly Junior, Advanced to Boardwalk, Monopoly the Card Game, Free Parking the Card Game, Don't Go to Jail, Monopoly Express, and Monopoly City. Monopoly just continues to grow. Starting in the 90s, they started making all these different versions of Monopoly. Your local college and city could have a local-opoly. TV shows have opoly, Simpsons-opoly, SpongeBob-opoly. Everything has an opoly nowadays, and all of those things just help to bring more and more people into the Monopoly family. In the mid-1990s, there was a short-lived Monopoly game show that aired on Saturday evenings. That show was produced by Merv Griffin and sadly didn't last long. And one very famous McDonald's cross-promotion is the McDonald's Monopoly Game Sweepstakes. In it, you get a board and try to fill in each piece. And if you could match all the colors of a property, you win the prize that that property tells you. I've tried to play it a couple of times, but I've only been able to win things, mostly small french fries, with the instant win tokens that come on the cups and french fries. Is Monopoly a perfect game? No. 
but it will always have critics and it will always have fans. Most important thing in that sentence is the always. Monopoly is ingrained into not just American culture at this point, but world culture. It's available in countries on almost every continent, and that number goes up every year. 10, 50, 100 years from now, odds are people will still be talking about the game of Monopoly. Now, I'm not saying it's as classical as, say, a game of chess, but it's one of those games that has started to transcend culture and is now become a rite of passage for young people as they move from the simple board games of childhood to the more complicated board games of adulthood. Me, I can think of nothing finer than a glass of cold nightmare tea, a bowl full of pretzels, and a good game of Monopoly. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and facebook.com slash retroist. If you have a suggestion for the show, email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Mr. Monopoly. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.